What's up, guys? This is the 404, the show for Atlanta sports fans to sound off on the latest in the 404 sports scene. I'm your host, Isaiah, and I'll be here to guide you through all the triumphs and the tragedies of sports around the 404. It won't always be pretty, but I can promise you it will be fun. So, ATL, let's talk. What's up, Atlanta? This is your boy, Isaiah Smith, host of the 404. Long time no see. Been a while since I've been able to get on the mic and uh, talk to you guys about what's going on around the 404 in, in Atlanta sports. And we've had a lot happen since our last episode, I believe. We we wrapped up talking about um, some, some Hawks playoff predictions and things like that. And now the playoffs are officially upon us. So much else has happened as well. Um, Julio Jones has gone on national TV, something he hasn't done very often. And demanded a trade. Atlanta United is still finding a way to piss away leads and, and squander opportunities to win games. Um, so it's it's very been a very, very fun time around Atlanta. I've been watching. I've um, been also planning some things for the show, so hopefully have some cool things for you for you guys, for the listeners coming up throughout the summer. But today, going to jump in and start talking about the Hawks. They are the biggest ticket, the hottest thing smoking around Atlanta, other than maybe the Delta Jets that are flying the Knicks uh, bum, bummed behinds out of Atlanta. But nonetheless, going to talk about the Hawks. They hold a 3-1 series lead as of now, as of recording this. And so just as far as the series goes, um, this series has been very simple. It's been a very easy one to kind of look at and deduce. And a lot of people we here in Atlanta knew it. Um, the national media didn't know it because they probably watched all four Hawks games all year. And three of those were the times the Knicks beat the crap out of the Hawks, I'm sure. But um, it's very simple to me. This series there's not a lot of ways to describe it other than it just being an old fashioned butt kicking by the Hawks. It's very clear that the Hawks are the better team. They're the more skilled team. They're the the better team offensively. They found it defensively, whatever finding it is, they figured out a way to neutralize Julius Randle. But overall, I think the series has lived up to the hype. Um, You know, just speaking of it from a, from an, top-down overview perspective. Um, The series has really lived up to the hype. It's been physical. Um, We had the wild environment in games one and two. Um, And for every obstacle the Knicks have really thrown at the Hawks, the the Hawks have been able to answer, and they've answered resoundingly. Um, The Knicks up the physicality, um, and, and the Hawks really haven't been phased. They've answered that bell. And, you know, I thought after game two, the Knicks would be able um, to maybe push the Hawks around or really use that physicality to their advantage and kind of make the Hawks look weak or things like that. Um, But I'm actually not sure that's been the case. As a matter of fact, you know, you heard Clint Capella say that they thought they could come in and push them around. You heard that actually today on Tuesday. He made his comments to the media, and we'll address that a little bit later. But um, I'm not sure if the numbers actually support the Knicks being the more physical team, even though the Knicks have outshot the Hawks from the free throw line over the past two games in some foul shooting discrepancies that have just been seems like for the ages um it's been some ridiculous numbers the advantage the Knicks have had from the line and they're still unable to touch the Hawks offensively um is the thing it's not like the Knicks are shooting a poor percentage either they're getting a lot more opportunities and they're cashing a lot of them in they're just not able to touch the Hawks with what the Hawks are able to do offensively and as efficient as they are but the Knicks have been aggressive they've attacked the basket they've absorbed the Hawks contact they've done a, a lot of you would think in their minds they would say done some good things. Um, the Hawks haven't been, but 
from a Hawks perspective, they haven't been afraid to send messages. They're using the fouls when the Knicks think they can get to the paint or can use their bodies in the lane and they throw a shot. The Hawks aren't afraid to, to body back and to use those fouls and make the Knicks earn their points from the line. And you've seen them do it with Julius Randle. Um, you've seen them do it with, with Derrick Rose and some other guys, even though Derrick Rose has had um, had a good series, um, it hasn't translated to wins. And I think that's that's okay if you're a Hawks fan and I think it's okay if you're the Hawks as well. Um, but Atlanta has an answer, answer for Julius Randle. It's not one guy but it's been a collective group effort with DeAndre Hunter back in the lineup. I love the energy, the versatility um, that, that Hunter brings with being able to match up with Julius Randle or Derrick Rose if he has to, or whoever in that Knicks lineup. You know, I really, DeAndre Hunter can guard one through four. We knew that when he came to Atlanta, and now we're really seeing him embrace that role. But, you know, Julius Randle, um, he – Speaking about him a little bit, he has been finding ways to have better games of late, but he's not nearly as efficient as he was against the Hawks in the regular season. Um, in the regular season, he averaged around 36 points a game against the Hawks. Now he's around 16.8 uh, points a game, but he's shooting abysmal, you know, it's to 27% from the field in the playoffs. And, and that was not the case for Randall in the regular season. If you remember, he was getting whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. He was getting to the basket. He was hitting the step back. Um, he was, you know, physically abusing the Hawks and they tried to put a smaller guy on him when they even when they tried to use John Collins he just bang him bang him and then get on get to the block or get to a spot and make a turnaround or, or power through um and then when you try to put a you know a shorter defender or maybe a stockier defender he'd take him to the perimeter and either go by or he you know use a step back from 18 feet or even from three-point land but you know they've refused to allow Julius Randle to beat them and I think that goes back to coaching the fact that the Hawks have had a week to prepare um, Nate McMillan's defensive prowess and his ability to put together a game plan that takes away the other team's strength it, it, that really had wasn't a question I thought you know I had coming into this series I just truthfully thought Julius Randle was a little bit better player um, and the Hawks have really done a good job of showing exactly maybe how good of a player he is if that makes sense I'm um, not to say he's a bad player by any respects but he's definitely not the kind of guy that I would say I want carrying my franchise um, going through a playoff run and expecting to, to make some noise realistically make some noise and win multiple series and maybe even advance to a conference finals but um, obviously stopping him is easier said than done but the Hawks are doing it very very well in this series um, especially for a team that is thought to be not great um, defensively. But when you kind of look around and ask yourself how how the Hawks have built the lead, I think defensively is part of it. They've really, really done a good job on that end of the court. But also overall, I think it comes down to the Hawks just being, like I said, you know, kind of before, comes down to the Hawks just being a much more balanced, much more well-rounded, a much more talented team overall. Um, With the Knicks in the run, outside of that run they made in game two, they're really – I haven't been any moments in this series where I felt like the Hawks weren't in control, even throughout the majority of game two outside of, um, even in the third quarter when the Knicks made their run and stretched that league to 10 toward the end of the third quarter when the bench was in. And, you know, until the end of the game, I believe the Hawks tied it at like 105 or 109 and the Knicks went on a 10-2 run to close or whatever it was. But until that moment, I felt like the Hawks were in control. I felt like Trey Young was going to take over. He was going to put some guys in some good positions and or, or do whatever was necessary. Um, or the Haw- and the Hawks as a whole were going to figure it out. I never felt like they were had a moment where the game was wasn't in control. I felt like they were, have always been in control, and that's a, a big 
thing to say, I think, um, when when the fans watching from the outside or analysts or whoever have that feeling and can see that and can sense that, and it comes from the team and the the swagger that they play with and the moxie they have on the court. Um, but, you know, I think that feeling for, for Atlanta, for the Hawks, comes from the fact that you have several players that can get you 20 on any night. They can flat out score the basketball. Trey has obviously been the head of the snake, um, and it seems like every time the Knicks decide to try and take – away some aspect of his game he channels another aspect and really um and, and really hurts them with it you know they took away the lobs to capella in game two but he punished the knicks with mid-range jumpers floaters um obviously using his three-point shot as well then they tried to bully him be more physical in game three and try to you know just neutralize his effects you know scoring the basketball and he really did a good job of getting his teammates involved in their first game at home he had 21 points but also had 14 assists in that game and, and the last two games have kind of not been his greatest offensive showings, if you will. They've done a decent job of keeping him off the, the scoreboard, not letting him get 30 and have those monster games um, in, in the scoring category. But he has 23 total assists, and he's getting other players involved. You know, Bogdanovich over the last two games has had, you know, four, is averaging around 14 points a game. Uh, Danilo, Danilo Gallinari getting around 15 points a game. Kevin Herter up around 10 points a game. And Capello's back near double figures after scoring, I think, two points, only having one basket um, in game two. And also John Collins, maybe the guy who who Hawks fans wanted to see have a big impact and wanted to see have a big postseason. He's back um, finding his rhythm, really playing within himself, doing a lot of the things we want to see, you know, scoring 14 points a game. And his emergence as a rebounder and a finisher has been huge, but maybe something that we didn't expect to see him emerge as um, as a shooter has been really big as well. The Knicks are, are almost saying, hey, we'll, we're going to pack the paint. We're not going to let Trey or Capella hurt us and throw lobs and do those types of things. So if he wants to throw it out to Collins at the three-point line, they're saying do it, but he's shooting it at around a 43% clip in the series. So that those are odds I like. If John Collins is shooting, you know, very, very open or wide open rhythm three-point shots, um, I'll take it. Um, we knew he was, you know, too good to not bounce back from the game two performance, but I don't know that I expected him to bounce back in the way he did um, in games three and four, especially I believe game four, he had a, had a pretty big game and did, you know, did a lot of those things that we wanted to see shooting the three, really attacking the basket, being a slasher, um, you know, catching those passes from Trey Young, catching the lobs, attacking with the bounce, doing a lot of the things that we're used to seeing John Collins do and playing his typical game, the game that I think is going to get him paid a lot of money here in a few coming in the coming weeks or coming months. But I want to get back to to the star of the show for for Atlanta. I want to talk about Trey Young for just a bit before we bounce on and move on here in the show. Um, but Trey Young is, you know, a lot of people said this was his opportunity, his first opportunity really to kind of make a name for himself on the national stage and kind of have that coming out party and really, really, really go out and ball out and show people what he can do. Um, and he is truly doing that right now. I'm so glad this is finally the case. People say um, all the time in the national media, you won't get respect until you win in the playoffs, yada, yada. Yada. And so Trey Young is doing that. He's doing it as the leader of a team and as its best player, which is something that some people thought he couldn't be. They didn't think he could be the leader of a team. Also didn't think he could be a team's uh, the best player on a successful team when he was drafted. And the other thing about it is I love that he's being himself and people are having to take that as it comes. And when I say being himself, I don't mean he's playing a certain way, but he's just exuding that with, with the attitude that he has and, and, and just 
being the turd that he is almost at times. You know, we knew Trey Young's a very competitive guy. I talked about it on this show before. He's very fiery. He thinks he's the best. He always wants to compete against the best. And when he when he wins against the best, he's very clearly not afraid to to let them know. And he went up there in game one, his first playoff game, and you know did what he did and played his game and talked his talk. And then you know it it, it made some people not like it because he went into you know what is basketball mecca and did that in the garden. But you know. I think people are having to accept that as it comes. Some people don't like it. Um, and, and I only use this co- upcoming comparison I'm going to make um, because it was Trey Young's pro comparison for a lot of people when he came into the league. But looking around and seeing, trying to find guys who have kind of had the – the ascension that Trey Young has had and, and kind of possess the same skill set and do a lot of the same things he does with with the shooting and the ability to make you respect his jump shot first and then him being able to attack and use that to set up other parts of his game. Um, but Steph Curry, you know, I want to talk about Steph Curry. Steph Curry's got some turd in and we know that. We found that out. Um, but when Steph Curry made his ascent – it's all Steph Curry had a bit of a choir boy reputation. Maybe it's because I, you know, I, I'm not the Warriors fan and I don't watch all the Warriors games and see him doing all the stuff, but really in the highlights and things like that, you, you see Steph Curry talking to the crowd, you see Steph Curry doing these different things, but you know, he doesn't ever become vilified. Um, the way that some people want to paint Trey Young is actually being a villain, even though their games do possess some similarities. You know, you see Steph Curry out there, he's light skinned, he's a good haired shooter, he's got the bubbly personality, you know, he's friendly with the media. Um, and, and I think all that gave Steph a largely positive image in a lot of people's eyes until he started beating beating their team's brains out. Um, and then people started not liking him. But you know, Trey Young's rise in this playoffs doesn't seem quite as clear cut. There are some similarities, don't get me wrong, with both being smaller market teams um, with Steph and Golden State and, you know, Trey in Atlanta, if you want to call Atlanta a smaller market, um, based off of just their success they've had. Um, but where Steph always, you know, kind of seemed to get his way coming off the screens in a pretty way. And, you know, Trey almost gets his out of the mud in Atlanta. Um, you know, Trey Young, he's clearly gritty. We've talked about that. And maybe the biggest thing is he's not afraid to talk his talk. Um and, you know, it's the same thing with Steph shimmying and doing all the crap he does when he makes, you know, deep threes at the end of games to ice games or, or win games and things like that. But there's just something different about shimmying in Oklahoma City after you hit a game winner as opposed to when you, you know, put your finger to your lips and you shush the garden, Madison Square Garden, basketball mecca, um, the, the most revered basketball venue in the world with the Knicks playing in there. He, he didn't do this in the Big East tournament. He didn't do this in some – you know, high school tournament or whatever, but Trey Young did it in Madison Square Garden, an NBA game, and he, you know, but he shushed the Garden and told Spike Lee and you know, twenty thousand and seven hundred and eighty some odd of his closest friends, um, it's quiet as you know what in here. Um, and after they've heckled you for forty eight minutes straight, and you just hit a dagger, you know, to beat them in their first home playoff game in years, there's just something different about that. The Knicks kind of get a little bit of, oomph, if you will, from the from the national media, they're a little bit of a darling and everyone think, oh, the NBA is better when the Knicks are here. Just like college football heads say, oh, it's better when Notre Dame's good and crap like that. Um, but all, nonetheless, when, when you've put up with it for 48 minutes and you get to, to kind of stick it to the garden, if you will, there's something about that that makes you a little bit of a villain. So if Trey Young has to become the next great NBA villain, um, you know, on a level, you know, like Draymond Green was for a while or LeBron was when he first went to Miami or whoever, um, if he's going to ascend to the level and have the success that those other noted villains have had, um, 
I'm okay with it. You know, some people speculate it with his style of play and, you know, his confidence. Some people call it other things. They say he's cocky. I say he's got some bravado. He's got some swagger. Um, And if that makes him a villain, bring it on. Um, Trey's being his true, authentic self, and that's what you got to ask for. It comes with some bad, and sometimes he's going to have to eat the talk. He's not always going to be um, successful in running his mouth and then being able to, you know, always back it up and always have things go his way. But if he is going – if that is his true, authentic self and he's going to do that, you know, I'm going to – I'm, I'm down with that, like four flat tires. You know, I'll ride with him forever. I don't want to roll with an imposter leading, you know, my city's team, if you will. Um, I love the movie that Trey Young is writing where he's the overlooked, under, overlooked, underestimated guy who ascends when everyone else really didn't want him to or doesn't really expect him to or whatever. And then he gives those people the business um, to all the people or he gives the business to all those people who doubted him or didn't think he should be where he is. And if that makes him the villain, you know, I'm, I'm with it. I'm with him. Like, you know, Harley Quinn rides for the Joker. I'm there. Um, but nonetheless, kind of last bit here before we hop into a, into a break, but as far as the national narrative around the Hawks, cause that's what a lot of people want. They want that national respect and you're getting it from some people, you know, Kendrick Perkins, he's, he's letting people know. He actually said today that if, you know, Joel Embiid is not healthy, it is the, the Hawks could take the Sixers to the wire and could actually put them out. He actually said the Sixers should go ahead and book their flight to Cabo if they are, I believe Cabo, if they do, do not have Joel Embiid in round two and they do in fact face the Hawks. Um, but I think that narrative doesn't change overnight. It happens as you have more success and that success has time to, time to marinate and people go into the, ne- the next seasons or, you know, seasons in the future and then get the opportunity to um get the opportunity to, you know, give you goals to meet or or give their expectations and you surpass expectations as the Hawks are doing now. So I think it all is a process and it comes with some cultivating and more winning and things like that, but it is in the process of changing. We see guys like Kendrick Perkins, who I talked about earlier, Doug Gottlieb, they recognize what's going on in Atlanta. Now, granted, you still have the Jalen Roses of the world saying things on national TV, like the Hawks need more Gallo and less Hunter. Um, You know, I like Jalen Rose. think he's a solid commentator, does a really good job, does, you know, does well at his job. But clearly that's a statement made by someone who is watching the stat sheet and not the game. Hawks fans know why DeAndre Hunter's in the game. They know he affects the game in multiple, multiple ways that aren't always shown on the stat sheet. But you need that. You need his effect. You need his ability. Um, even if Cam Reddish is able to come back and is primarily a defender when he returns, as, as some people are speculating, um, he may be able to come back in this playoffs. You know, it, those types of guys you need to be a successful team. And I think the Hawks have some guys who can be gritty, who can be grimy. Maybe they're not going to score 30 points, but they they will be able to get you 10 to 12, knock down some open shots, and then defend the heck out of it and take away the other team's best player and make them have a bad game throughout the, have bad games throughout the series and throughout the course of a season. And those guys are often overlooked nationally because they're, unless they're yelling in guys' faces and getting suspended and things like that, like Draymond Green, um, you don't know. You don't know that good defenders are good defenders always until you have to play them and then you realize man that guy's a really good defender on on another team or even on your team when you see it um so i think as far as that national narrative goes it's changing um as the hawks get on national tv as they beat some big time opponents if they get a fully healthy philly and and take them to five six you know take them to six or seven games or even you know um just get there and play competitive games you know and win one or two um that will 
cultivate that narrative. And right now, I think things are in the process of shifting. Um, it's almost like trying to move a boulder that's been somewhere for 100 years. You're not going to just walk up to it and, you know, knock it to where you want it in one swift, you know, swift motion, unless you're Hercules. You got to put some work behind it. You got to work. It's going to move gradually at first. But then once you get it rolling downhill, things really do change. Things really do. Um, it does make a difference. So um, as round one concludes and we go into round two, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens as this season ends and next season progresses. I want to know what the national media is going to say. If they continue to slight the Hawks, we're going to continue to play the underdog. Nobody believed in us card and we'll ride and the team will ride that all the way to an NBA title. But I do think the Hawks are making a lot of people take notice or will take a lot of people take notice, especially as they advance in the playoffs, if they can get past the Knicks here and whether it's through, you know, free agency or seasoning team's going to keep improving. And I think another playoff run is just going to make this the narrative around this team keep changing, keep changing. And hopefully it changes enough to where, you know, superstar player, other superstar players want to come and play with Trey Young, want to play in the city. And so I think that's also part of it as well to attract those big time free agents. So as far as the Hawks, that's all I've got. Stick around. I'm going to step away for a quick break. When we return, we got a brand new 404 The Birds for you. And then before we get out of here, I'm going to run you through the Julio Jones saga. As of producing, doing this podcast, recording this podcast, Julio Jones has not been traded. By the time it drops, that may change. So please bear with me if that is the case. But the Julio Jones saga, part three, if you will. We're going to bring that to you right after this break. Don't you just hate it when the group text is jumping about last night's game, but you don't have anything to say because you didn't watch it? Well, if you listen to the 404 Forum, you will never feel that again because we're bringing you the latest each week in what's happening around Atlanta sports scene. So follow the show on Facebook and Twitter and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll never feel left out in the group text again. What's up, Atlanta? This is your host of the 404 Forum, Isaiah Smith, coming back to you after a quick break. Um, didn't mention it at the start of the show. Be sure to check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Um, just search for the 404 Forum. Um, also, check us out. Make sure to like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, wherever you get your podcasts. So um, before we go any further, it is now time for a new 404 The Birds. Now it's time for 404 The Birds. So in this week's uh, 404 The Birds, I, I want to talk about the NBA and its fan problem. Um, I think we can go ahead and say the NBA has a fan problem now that most arenas that are you know still operating, still have teams playing in them, have um, opened up to full capacity. They're nearly full capacity and, and have different things going on depending on what their states and cities allow as far as COVID-19 regulations. But we've seen over the past call it, what do you say, two and a half, three weeks, really since the playoffs began when teams wanted to cultivate that, you know, real environment, the old environment that we saw before COVID, not with the partial crowds of 7,500 in a 20,000-seat arena, but getting, you know, 15, 20,000 people into these arenas and really letting them have, showing the real basketball experience again. But we've seen popcorn dumped on guys. We've seen bottles thrown at Kyrie Irving, you know, popcorn dumped on Russell Westbrook. We've seen, you know, Trey Young got spit on in Madison Square Garden. All the while, the, the, the fans are yelling F you, which is, you know, part of sports, the chanting, but the spitting is a, is a no-go. Um, 
so many other incidents like this, you know, it's hard to turn your eye from, it's hard to turn away from. And even just, you know, last night um, on Monday night, we saw a fan run onto the court in Philadelphia, which brings its own set of problems. But we've got to talk about the NBA and its fan problem. And it's not an issue of the NBA allowing more people into its facilities. We've had packed out arenas before COVID-19. I think part of it is people have been cooped up in their houses for a year, haven't been able to get out. And so some things sound better um, when you're kind of clout chasing with your boys and maybe you're a couple, a couple drinks deep uh, in, in a certain arena and, you know, you're getting your tail waxed by a certain guy. And so somebody says, you know, it's a bet you won't type of situation, but you know, at some point, cooler, calmer, more rational heads have to prevail. You know, if you're paying money to go into these venues, you know, you have to abide by their rules. And all that in mind, it's just ridiculous that you would think it's okay to try and do something to harm or physically hurt or just do something as disgusting as spitting on someone or pouring a drink and popcorn on them just because they were giving your team the business or you don't like that player over a dadgum game. At the end of the day, it's a game. I mean, these guys are working. It's their livelihood, yes. And as fans, it's your job to be passionate, scream, yell, and cheer. But within the confines of reason, you know, reason and good taste and nothing that has happened, these incidents that we're talking about is within, is within good taste. And I think the, the, the way to solve it, um, obviously, some arenas are taking good steps by banning people for life and doing different things like that. Um, but we, I do want more accountability. I'll, I'll backtrack. The way to solve it is to, to give, you know, give the player who had the incident and the fan who who began the incident, give the player and the fan about two good minutes in the tunnel or in, in one of those back rooms in the tunnel. Um, and I promise you the player is going to come or the, the fan is going to come out a, a changed man after, you know, I don't know too many guys who are sitting in the stands in their, in their jerseys who are going to be able to go toe to toe with an actual NBA player in a situation where physical, physical altercation may be, may be coming or maybe brewing. Um, so with all that in mind, I think that would solve it, but that's not the diplomatic way. The, the diplomatic way is hold these people accountable. And we're seeing the arenas do that, you know, but, Take it a step further. Let Put these people on TV. Let us know who the idiot was. Let us see their face. And then even, you know, I think Jalen Rose said this, you know, ban them from the, anything pertaining to the arena, not just from Knicks games or Hawks games or, or whatever game, you know, games of the team. Ban them from the entire facility. You ain't coming to concerts. You ain't going to monster trucks. You ain't even going to watch them ride bulls in the arena. You know, if you – perpetrate an act like this because at the end of the day why can you be trusted to go into an arena and act like an adult um again why should we you know why should we and you could possibly injure someone a player potentially injure another spectator something like that um you know malice in the palace was real and you know i think that should be something that people should remember and should be a reminder that you know there's going to come a point if the nba doesn't start and fans don't start coming to their senses and there's not a little bit more you know of cooler heads prevailing that's we're closer to that than maybe we ever have been before since it happened um and and when that happens you can't fault a player especially if a fan started it not just with words because players are used to being talked to but a fan physically throwing an object or or pouring an object onto a player if you you know me if you spit on me yeah we were we were fighting there's gonna be a fight it's gonna happen and that's just the way it is so you know for the nba i think 
you know, tightening these protocols, doing, you know, doing everything you can to keep fans in, you know, being fans and just, you know, verbally doing whatever they do and, and, you know, just having a good time, enjoying the atmosphere, enjoying the game. That's what it's about. It should be about. Um, and when it moves beyond that, you know, using racial slurs, we saw John Morant's family have to deal with that in Utah and also, you know, trying to physically harm someone by throwing an object or things like that. That's when it's gone too far. Um, and so really the NBA has to do something. Um, they're taking the right steps. They're moving in the right direction, but it, there's still more that needs to be done to get people to stop acting like idiots. And eventually they will. Um, but it's just a matter of trying to get that to happen before we have a repeat of malice at the palace. So um, that's all I got for 404 the birds. Just know if you're going to an NBA game, going to a playoff game, don't act like an idiot. Just don't act like an idiot. Don't make sports center because you're acting like an idiot. Make it because you proposed to your girlfriend or, uh, you know, you hit the million dollar shot or made a million dollar putt or something, but don't act like an idiot. Don't be the guy who threw something at a player's head and got thrown out or better yet be the guy that got jacked up by a player. Cause you were close enough for the court for them to get their hands on you. Um, so nonetheless, I'm going to move forward, going to bring it back to Atlanta and talk some football. We've seen the Falcons. We talked draft had uh, some, some, you know, a solid draft um, analysis, if you will, kind of leading into the draft. And we'll talk about kind of the fallout from that in a little a little bit later once we get through this news and hopefully have some resolution here. Um, but the Julio Jones saga, and we'll call it Julio Jones saga part three, if you will. Um, but nonetheless, if you have been living under a rock, I'll catch you up. Julio Jones, you know, there was speculation that Julio was going to be traded pre-draft. He wasn't. Didn't get blown away by an offer was the was the word. Um, so then there's, you know, we think, okay, Julio's going to be a Falcon. Man, look at that three-headed monster with Ridley, Pitts, and, and Julio. That's going to be huge. Well, Matt Ryan, if they can find a serviceable offensive line, Mike Davis can run the football, yada, yada, yada. Um, well, then Julio Jones, whether, whether then the whole situation surrounding the call, um, we won't go into that. If it was a cold call and he didn't know he was on air and being recorded on TV. Um, I've, I've never, ta- you know, I've done a lot of, you know, a good bit of journalism in my life and I'm a journalism major. They didn't teach us about that in journalism school. I'm sorry, but they did not give us that one. So um, tell us that that was an acceptable method of get, pertain, obtaining information from a source to then use and present to the public. So, um, but he did say, you know, he's out of Atlanta. He's out of there. He's being traded. He wants to go somewhere where he can win, yada, yada, yada. So, all that in mind, we are now dealing with the fallback of what, where, what's happening. Are we trading Julio? What can we get for Julio? What's the reasonable package? What's too much? What's too little? Yada, yada, yada. So I would like to just backtrack even further before I, I talk about possible deals and things of that nature and recall a few seasons ago. Ago, um, you know, I wasn't doing a podcast on this show or doing any podcast, but I told some people um, it wasn't crazy to deal Julio Jones when he asked for more money in 2019. Uh, you know, we at the time, a lot of people, and maybe even myself included to an extent, we were blindsided by the Super Bowl hangover. We believed that team could make a return. Dan Quinn, Thomas Dimitrov constantly told us that we got the pieces, we can do it. Uh, um, you know, but the fact of the matter is that year seems the more we think about it and look back on it, that year, hindsight being 2020, that year was a lightning strike and lightning don't strike twice as we know, especially in professional sports. We got to live in reality, in the real world, in real life. Um, that defense that they had constructed clearly was not as talented as we'd hoped, which is very clear from looking at how many pieces of that defense are actually left when a new regime came in. If they thought that defense was as talented and as fast and physical as Dan Quinn wanted to make us believe they would still be here, but they are not. So, they were not as good as we hoped. We never hit on the right or on all cylinders after 
you know, Shanahan left um, in his second season and really, really, really had the offense clicking and doing a lot of the things. But, um, you know, Julio Jones demanded more money in 2019 after he signed a five-year, $71 million extension in 2015. Well, remember that 2015 extension? Well, in 2018, a few years into that extension, Julio Jones fell down the NFL's pay scale. More wide receivers and a few more quarterbacks got bigger deals because the salary cap things, the way it elevated. Julio said, I need more money. I need to be one of the highest paid players in the game. Well, in 2018, I said, okay. I said, let's do it. You know, Arthur Blank said, let's do it. Um, And so he got more money in the form of a signing bonus converted to the front end and made took him up to like 7 million a year, whatever it was. And so that was okay. Well, in 2019, he demanded more, new money. He wanted more new money to make him even more higher, highly paid. That is where I would have drawn the line. We've already rearranged money to get you up the pay scale the year before. And the idea behind that was, and to, um, to backtrack again, in 2018, Julio Jones demanded new money. The Falcons couldn't give him new money. He, they didn't have the cap space. So they made the signing bonus and converted that money to kind of bridge the gap to maybe giving him new money in 19, but they probably shouldn't have. They probably should have traded him in 19 when the cap hit was a little less. Um, but instead, they extended him for three more years, $66 million. Uh, everyone's billing Julio Jones. He's going to be a Falcon for life. And now the bill on that $66 million has come due, where neither side's particularly happy. Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith aren't happy with the cap hit um, versus the production that Julio has given. You know, Julio's been – too hurt for a lot of people's taste and the Falcons are clearly not in the win now mode that he would prefer that a team be in that he is going to play on. But because of the contract, he's so hard to get rid of. And so with all that in mind, I thought 2019 should have been the year you entertained a trade for Julio Jones and maybe even traded him instead of giving him new money. At that point, I was thinking, hey, what's it look like? What's life without Julio going to look like? What happens? I understand we couldn't fathom it at the time, and we thought that he was going to be, you know, he still had a lot left in the tank, yada, yada, yada. But deep down in your heart of hearts, you knew in 2019 that this roster was not all that. It was not all it was cracked up to be. We knew we had holes. We knew that there were things, and – the idea should have been entertained and maybe even publicly floated and maybe, you know, maybe even it should have been pulled off because there were definitely suitors, maybe even more suitors than there are now. But the truth of the matter is all wide receivers are divas. Julio Jones is no different, even if he is the consummate professional or whatever we like to say about him. I don't blame him for getting his money. I don't blame anybody for getting their money. I, I personally blame the previous regime for letting Julio Jones hold them hostage. You know, I always say, you know, it's always been said you're worth what they pay you. And that is true every single time and even true for him right now. But. I do not think that money should have been given to him in 2019, the extension. Push come to shove, he should have been traded. If he wasn't going to play, well, hey, we'll get you out of here on the first Delta smoking, Julio. Where you want to go, big guy? Um, and maybe the contract was over Thomas Dumitraw said. Maybe I'm placing the blame in the, at the to the wrong per, person's feet. But at the end of the day, we know that it was Thomas Dumitraw and Dan Quinn who were really in lockstep handling that type of business. So... It, and it's in line with the types of moves that they would make and had made over the course of their careers as, as in the Falcons organization. Um, but I just didn't like giving him that new money. And either way, you can't let one guy fran- handicap your franchise like that, especially when he's aging and his replacement is on the roster at that time in Calvin Ridley. And when he's clearly not the player he used to be, and that's evidenced by me- missing nearly a third of the games over the last two seasons, um, you know, and 
you know, even so, when you look even further back with Julio Jones, it's because of him the Falcons haven't had an offensive line. People love to hate on Matt Ryan. Well, look at the years he's had a solid offensive line, and then look at his numbers versus the years where he's had the makeshift offensive line. Um, picking Julio Jones cost the team so much draft capital that – they haven't been able to turn those into solid picks to protect Matt Ryan or find other solid players on defense and yada, yada, yada. Um, but being loyal to a fault um, to the to the old regime and to the old regime's players put the team in this position nonetheless. And, and I'm not saying that to bash Julio Jones. Again, I get your money. You're worth what they pay you. I'm just I'm saying that to to talk about just the fact that this is why we're where we're at with this situation because the old regime overpaid for Julio Jones when they probably should have sent him out or told him just flat out said no. But again, you know, that may not have been their decision, may have been over their head, may have been from upper upper management, but nonetheless, it was a bad business decision. So at, at this point, that's the only thing left to do now is trade Julio Jones. The idea that we can somehow make it work or figure it out, that's gone. Um, but the craziness of blaming Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith for Julio Jones being discontented is ridiculous. You know, the Falcons have been more than hospitable to Julio Jones as far as this relationship goes. And, you know, this the relationship between the Falcons and Julio Jones is just like everything else in the NFL. The NFL is a business and that applies to even relationships like these, you know, the Falcons are honoring his request, which I think is a good thing for player relations as it goes. Um, and it puts Julio Jones in a position to win a ring now, hopefully, and I hope it's a mutually beneficial move because it gives the Falcons some cap space, but I can't fault the new regime for taking calls on a cap heavy player who missed seven games last season, missed nearly half the year last year, just to hear, you know, what, what was wanted on him. And if that offended Julio Jones, and so be it. They're trying to do the best business possible with the funds and the resources they have. And it's foolish to judge Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith off of this move. Maybe this is the, the right move. Who knows? We won't know that for maybe a year or two. But holding judgment until then, I, I'm personally doing that because we don't know what this team's even going to look like come August, come training camp, let alone um, when the first, you know, when the ball's first snapped for the first game. So, you know, I do agree for casual fan optics. They need to make sure they're making the right decision, yada, yada, yada. But I've got no reason not to trust Arthur Smith and Terry Fontenot. You know, Julio is going to have to leave Atlanta at some point. And in five to ten years, he's going to ride onto the field in a nice new Mercedes Benz. He's going to slide on the midfield with Arthur Blank and some other folks in the back. He's going to be sitting there waving to the crowd. His jersey's going to fall from the rafters. They're going to give him a ten-minute long standing ovation or 11 because that's the number he wore in Atlanta. And then all things are all going to be right with the world. Julio Jones is going to love Atlanta. Atlanta is going to love Julio. We're going to acknowledge that. And it stings right now because it's new, but time heals all wounds. And that's just the fact of the matter. Um, but it's a business decision, a business move that has to be made. And, you know, for all the Matt Ryan haters saying it's his fault, you should take less money. We'll address. Well, I'll, I'll speak with you later. But nonetheless, I, you know, Julio Jones, he, he's he's got to go. Um, it's inevitable at this point. It's going to happen. Um, and it's not about picking one side over the other. It's simply business. And and if you ask anyone in business, sometimes you got to make the tough decisions to do what's what's best for the company at the time in the long term future going forward. So as far as return prices, you know, a lot of people think Julio Jones is worth first round here in Atlanta. I personally think if you can get a first round, get it. But I think the cap relief for the front office is going to be 
the most prominent thing. And that may look like a conditional second round pick or even or straight up a second round pick or maybe even a third round pick in multiple um, some multiple later round selections. So, you know, not to go into suitors too much, because that's, you know, we've already spent a lot of time, a little bit of time talking about Julio and, and just how we've gotten here and the optics behind it. But you know, the Chargers potentially could make, could make it work. Um, the Patriots are a team that a lot of people think could could pull something like this off. The Eagles have been a dark horse contender. But you definitely, if I'm the Falcons, I want someone to take on the majority, if not all, of his contract, the cat pit that would come to you, even though you traded him and got a salary off the books um, in 2021. So you can sign the draft class. I think, you know, taking a you know, first round, first round pick and them taking all of his cap, that is the ideal situation. Unfortunately, there are very few teams who are in that position and have that luxury. So I think a second, potentially a cheap player, if you can get it, or even a conditional second and a cheap player who can contribute right now um, and them taking all, if not all, the majority of his cap hit would definitely be the ideal scenario. I think that's the most realistic scenario. So it would be a second, the other team taking all of his his cap hit, or even maybe a conditional second, and then maybe a, a cheap player if you that can contribute right now. That would be the ideal scenario. Um, but you know, again, this is a move about cap space. You can't even sign your draft class right now, and you have to have those guys to play football next year. You make out your roster. So, as far as that goes, and then looking at the team season, I will say, you know, having to trade, I don't want to trade Julio Jones. To trade Julio Jones puts a damper on the outlook of this season for sure. For me personally, it puts a damper on it. It definitely makes it not as um, not as lucrative when you think about having Kyle Pitts and Ridley and the one on ones those guys are going to get from their very from their respective positions with Julio Jones also being on the field. You can't double all three of them and still expect to stop other things in, in football, you know. Um, but all that in mind, it, it 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 puts a damper on it as far as the outlook of this season. But it's something that had to happen at some point, so we may as well prepare for it and get ready to go into battle this year and see what happens who knows what this team can be what they're going to shape out to be we don't even know what it's going to look like right now so i think you know stop panicking believe in whatever the process is and what it's looking like if you're a fan and go into it neutral you know in a neutral position without the rose colored glasses on knowing that this may be a process you know dean pease is a very good defensive coordinator he you know heard him in some interviews talk about what he would like to do and his visions for this defense and bringing pressure and doing those types of things um but all in all it's going to take a minute to get get the cap relief that you need for Terry Fontenot, Arthur Smith, Dean Pease to get their players in, to get the guys that they want in their system that fit their system, do the things they want to do. So all that in mind, I think it's important to just be level-headed, be neutral, understand that whatever happens this year happens, and hope for the best. You know, be excited, be passionate, but hope for the best. And don't act like a fool at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. But – Nonetheless, that's all we got for this week's show. Thank you guys for listening. Next week, looking to to get back in and talk more Hawks, definitely. Hopefully going to be able to talk some Georgia football. Um, a big day with them getting back on campus today and that, that you know, the dead period ending, if you will. Um, Arik Gilbert um, is on campus that Georgia has enrolled, is the word that is being reported. Um, also, um, a couple other defensive back transfers that hopefully we'll be able to talk about with some guests here as well. But nonetheless, that is all we got this week for the 404. Thank you guys for listening, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.